Open your Bibles to Micah 5. The book of Micah is definitely not about Christmas. Micah's one of those prophets you wouldn't want to have over for dinner. Most of them you wouldn't, right? Most of the prophets were not the people you really like to be around. Uh, Kind of a Debbie Downer or whatever the uh, male version of that is. But Micah Micah was not depressed or or somehow manic depressive. Uh, Micah was was very much a a prophet that loved the people of God. Um, You got to know that in the Old Testament when destruction was coming upon Israel or Judah, it was not coming because God just wanted to try something out. It was coming when the people of God forsook God and they turned away from God and they turned to idols. They brought it on themselves. So the prophets did not bring destruction. They let people know it was coming and here's how you turn back to the Lord. The book of Micah goes back and forth between some depressing thoughts and some real hopeful thoughts. Micah prophesied that Samaria, which Samaria was, you remember after Solomon, when his son took over the throne, Israel and Judah split. So 10 tribes of the north went this way, and Judah and and a smaller tribe went this way, and the tribes of Israel were split. And so um, when that split happened, Samaria was the capital of Israel, whereas Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. Micah prophesied, way before it happened, that Samaria would fall to the Assyrians. And then he said, much later, Jerusalem will fall to the Babylonians. And that's exactly what happened. He called it. It happened exactly like he said. If you were living around that time, you would have assumed that the Assyrians would have taken the north and the south because they were the most powerful army on the earth at the time, or at least in that part of the world. They were the empire. But God saved Judah because Hezekiah turned to the Lord. And because the people of God called upon the name of the Lord. God saved Judah from the hand of the Assyrians. But then they turned back to their ways and they were eventually turned over to the Babylonians. So Micah tells them that this is going to happen. But then he gives them hope. He tells them, guys, this was coming. You brought this on yourselves. You turned from God. You turned to idols. And this is what happens when, when you do that. But then he gives them hope and, and tells them that God is, is, is a God that's going to save you, that God has not forsaken you. Micah chapter 5 is not where you'd look if you were looking for a good Christmas scripture. Of course, we do now because we know what's in it. But at the time, they had no, they, their mind was not on the Messiah. Their mind was on how are we going to escape the invasion. Micah tells them this in Micah 5, 1. He says, now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. He's speaking to a group of people that know invasion is coming. Well, it's here already. They're under siege. This is the end. The Assyrians are taking Samaria. The Assyrians are at the gates and they're taking the capital. The Bible tells us that At that time, the siege became so bad that much like what you see in Aleppo right now, where the refugees are without food or without any protection, this is what it was like in Israel. And and at that point in time, 
It's not popular to walk around telling people, I told you so. You're not, you're not the guy that people want to listen to. Micah says they're at the gates. Now, here's where everybody looks to him for hope. Now, they've turned away from God. You know, it's funny. People turn away from God. They say, we don't want you in our school. They don't want you in our court. We don't want you in our house. We don't want you on TV. And then when something bad happens, they say, but where was God? Yeah. Right? Well, you didn't want him. And this is exactly what happened to the Israelites. Where was God? He's where he always was. Where were you? And here's what happens. Micah says, muster yourself in the troops. So if I were in the, in, in the shoes of the people listening to Micah, I'd say, oh, good, here comes the good part. Uh, Daddy's going to pay for my crash car. It's all going to be okay. I mean, he told us we're under siege, but he's talking about troops. This is a good thing. And then he shifts. He says, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. What God does not promise them is that they'll escape the Assyrians. But what he does promise them is that there will come a ruler and he's going to make all this right again. I'm sure if I were listening, I would have thought, kid's going to be born, he's going to save us from this situation. But the truth was, there was something much greater at work. And in the midst of destruction, God was promising hope. He was talking about Jesus. We all know that now. That, that, key, that key word of, of, of him being born in Bethlehem, then all of a sudden it begins to tie together. God has been telling us for centuries. He's sending a Messiah. He didn't stop telling them. He kept reminding them, it's coming, it's coming. My Redeemer is coming. But I want you to see what he says. He says, but for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. See, nobody's looking to Bethlehem when they're under siege from the Assyrians. Nobody's looking to Bethlehem when the Babylonians are at the gate. Nobody's looking to Bethlehem because Bethlehem is a small rural town. The only thing of note that, that has to do with Bethlehem is that it was the, the city of David, the town of David. But remember, David was plucked out of the sheep fields. David was not plucked out of the military academy. He was not taken from the courts of the king. He was anointed in the middle of a pasture. And even his own father showcased all of his other brothers, showcased all the sons of Jesse, and then David was kind of an afterthought. The prophet said, is there any other kids you have? He goes, well, I have one, but he's out there. Can you imagine if that's how your dad thought of you? <laughs> Show me your sons. Show me your kids. One of them's going to be great. Oh, here they are. This one's strong. This one's smart. Don't you have any others? Well, technically we do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you were the technically kid in your house, the runt. Well, there was David. He's just a shepherd. He's the, he's the kid that we just leave with the sheep. So that's how Bethlehem, that was what Bethlehem was known for. It was the hometown of David. But even David didn't stay in Bethlehem, right? When he became king, he went to Jerusalem. God says unto you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
too small to be considered among the clans of Judah. So Judah was the tribe, but in the tribe there were little family clans. He said, Bethlehem, it's too small to even be considered among the tribes of Judah. Which reminds us back, remember King Saul, when God called him, Saul said, you can't be talking about me. I'm from the smallest tribe and the smallest family in the tribe. And even in my own family, I'm not the biggest. I'm not the strongest. I'm not the one you'd look to. It seems like God's got a habit of picking the smallest places, the places everybody else has looked over. These are the places he likes to use and start things from. Unto you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, for you, there's going to be a ruler born. And everybody would have thought, no, rulers are born in, in the capitals. Rulers are born in Samaria. Rulers are born in Jerusalem. But he says, no, a ruler will go forth from you. His going forth are from long ago. So it's not going to start in Bethlehem. It may seem like it starts in Bethlehem, but this goes back. He is ancient. He is before all things. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. He will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. So this is describing a journey. It starts with greatness that nobody sees, right? The greatness that nobody sees is that this guy's existed before time, but you don't know him. Now, Jesus is God. Jesus is in God. And yet they don't know him. They're not aware. His goings forth are from the ancient times, from before eternity. And so then he says, but he'll come out of this small little clan that everybody looks over and nobody thinks anything good will come out of it. And by the end of the prophecy, it says he will be great that he'll be great amongst the nation, that, that he will, uh, at, the t- at the end of that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. But God started something so great in a place very small, in a place that everybody looked over. This is his pattern. Remember, God's, one of Jesus' favorite examples, it's used throughout the Gospels, it's used throughout the New Testament. One of God's methods of communicating his kingdom is by the parable of the seed, right? How many times does Jesus use that as an example? The kingdom of God is like the seed. The word is like a seed. All of these things are described as beginning with the seed. Now you pick up a seed and you look at it and you have no idea what that seed contains, right? You, you may know what it was supposed to happen when you put it in the ground, but you don't know how much it's going to produce. So, I mean, you may have a good scientific guess, but in reality, you don't know from this seed how much will this produce, which will produce more seed, which will produce more harvest. When you look at it, it's hard to comprehend how great and all, all of the potential that is contained with that little tiny seed. The issue is, for us, when we look for deliverance, when we look for God to move on our behalf, when we look for God to do a great and mighty thing, we look in the obvious places. Well, if God's going to send great revival to Canada, look to the big cities, look to the big churches. Or if God's going to use somebody to speak the word of God, look to the ones that are well-spoken in our community. Look to the ones that, that have good reputation. 
On Wednesday night, we talked about that life was the light of men and how when Jesus came into the world, he enlightened every person. What does it mean to be enlightened? It means that all of a sudden you see what you didn't see before, that God has filled us with his light, not only that we would shine, but that we would perceive what he perceives. We would see what he sees. And we've got to stop thinking like the world thinks. The world looks in obvious places at obvious people. But God always begins with small things and allows the small things to grow into great things. Always. Without exception, God begins everything with a seed. It is one of the great laws of the kingdom. As long as the earth remains, he says, there will be seed time and harvest. But the problem is, we don't give anything weight until it gets big. That's how the world thinks, right? The world notices when you get big. God begins things very small. And to those that are spiritually alert, they'll see it when it's small. And they'll recognize it when everyone else despises it. Now, the word despise, we use quite harshly now. If I say, I despise you, it it means like I hate you. I can't stand the sight of you. But the word despise really means to take of no account. Scripture says that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. It's not that he was up on the cross going, I hate shame. Shame is stupid. Shame is the worst. No, it means he counted it as worth nothing. David's mighty men, of of whom great stories are told, of of guys that would defend a bean field, a lentil field, just one guy against a bunch of them, a guy that would chase a lion into a pit on a snowy day. These great mighty men started out, David's great army began with a bunch of rejects, the scripture says, that nobody liked. They were in debt, they were rejects, they were despised. And God picked those losers, the people everybody overlooked, to do something great. Now, we all know that. We'd all walk around the room and say, of course God does that. The question I want to ask you today is is not whether or not you believe that God uses the despised things to do great things. The question I want to ask you today is, are you looking for God's work in small places? Are you looking for the seeds of the kingdom where you don't expect them? Because I know we're all good Christians. We'd all say, of course, God uses the small. Of course, God uses the lowly. We all say that because that's what we're supposed to say. But are we looking for it? Because the truth is, an old man was at the temple waiting for God to show up. And he saw a baby and he said, this is the one. Mine eyes, he says, have seen the salvation of the Lord. You saw a baby. That baby's not going to do anything for, for at least a couple decades. What are you so excited about, dude? You didn't get to see salvation. You saw a baby that maybe would someday be salvation. But to this old man, Simeon, that baby, he knew what that was. To him, he saw it. How many times do we say, well, we'll just wait and see? Maybe that'll become great. Maybe that'll become big. Maybe that will become something someday. Whereas God doesn't say, wait until it becomes something. He says, pay attention to it when it's small. There's a great uh, illustration in the scripture where where, uh, Joshua, the high priest, Zechariah has a vision where he sees Joshua, the high priest, stand before God. And Joshua, whose name is Yeshua, it's the same name as Jesus. Joshua stands before God. 
and he's dirty and he's, he's gross because he's representing the people. And the people were dirty and gross. The people were sinful. And Satan stands next to him and he says, see, I told you, he's dirty, he's sinful, he's unworthy of your presence. And God says, the Lord rebuke you. Is not this the one that I have chosen? Isn't he the one that I plucked from the fire? Then he turns his attention to a, a guy named Zerubbabel. There's some pregnant people in the room today. Don't throw that name out so quickly. <laughs> Zerubbabel is a winner, and we all know it. No one forgets that name. <laughs> God turns his attention to Zerubbabel and he says, you're going to build the temple. And Zerubbabel had been trying to build the temple and it had been going badly. In fact, the scripture tells us in Nehemiah that some of the foreigners in the area came by and laughed at them and said, who are you going to finish this? This will never be like it was. This temple is a, is a heap of ruins. And he says, Zerubbabel, you'll rebuild the temple and it'll be great. He says, you're going to finish what you started because it's not by your might nor by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And he says something to Zerubbabel that I think we should all hear. Who has despised the day of small beginnings? That doesn't mean you hate small beginnings. It means you don't count them as worth anything. Who has despised the day of small beginnings? So we shouldn't despise the day of small beginnings. Well, what's the opposite of despising? Paying attention to it. God's people are not like the world. God's people are meant to be paying attention to the small things. Looking for God's deliverance in the places no one else is looking. Don't mean to bring fantasy into, the, into this message, but our brother in Christ, J.R. Tolkien, Told a pretty good story. Now, I don't know whether, you, if you don't want to watch it, you don't need to watch it. Don't tell your kids to watch it. Don't tell them Pastor Jonathan told you to watch it. I think it's a, it's a decent story. But that story of, a, of the Lord of the Rings, of, of a hobbit that goes and carries this valuable thing to go destroy it, and, and the message of the story is, who would ever count that little guy as worth anything? No one expects that little one to do something great. And that is the message of the kingdom, that God picks little ones. In small places. If we were to expect, where is God going to move in Canada? We look to Toronto, we look to Vancouver, we look to Ottawa. Maybe you look to Montreal, but not many people do. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> we can say that because we're out west. <laughs> Pardon moi, I'm sorry. We love Montreal. But they look to the places that are obvious. They look to the big churches, big cities, big people. Are we paying attention to what God's doing in rural Canada? Are we paying attention to what God's doing amongst the reserves of the north? Are we paying attention to what God's doing in Lloydminster? It really doesn't matter if the rest of Canada is paying attention. The question is, are you paying attention? Are you paying attention to the people in, that are gathered in this church that don't seem like they're as skilled or Talented, or sometimes we use the word anointed. We should use the word anointed, but we misuse the word anointed. When someone sings well, we say, well, that was anointed. It may have been. But is it more anointed because they were a better singer? No. 
Anointed just means that the Holy Spirit was on it and in it. Somebody could be anointed while shoveling the sidewalk. Why not? Somebody could be anointing while passing out bulletins or, or offering envelopes at the, at the door or uh, vacuuming the carpet or, or just anointed to greet people, anointed to love on people, anointed to talk to the one no one else is talking to. Do we see the anointing? So many times we say, oh, man, that, that great speaker, that great praise and worship leader, that great man or woman of God, they are so anointed. Well, all right, cool. I'm not sure what so anointed means. <laughs> Can I just be honest with you? Because I believe there's the Holy Spirit, and there's not like the super Holy Spirit. I believe some people yield more to the Spirit than others. Some people have surrendered more of themselves than others. And so I guess in that sense, you see more of the Spirit in them. But it's not like God's got different levels of, of this and that. It's, it's whether how surrendered we are to the Holy Spirit. And many times, the times we say we're, it was so anointed is when we get some goosebumps and some chills, because let's just face it, there was really good keyboard effects. Right? You know, I've heard some out-of-tune guitars and some out-of-tune voices. And a lot of times people don't go up to those, per- those people and say, that was anointed. <laughs> they just make, just don't make eye contact with them <laughs> and say, I like your shoes. I love your shoes up there. You, you had the great shoes. You have the best shoes. <laughs> Boy, you sing with passion. I'll give you that. <laughs> What are we looking for? Jesus said to a group of people that were upset with him, because there was always a group of people upset with him, he said, what would you go out to see when you saw John? When you guys complained, he wasn't fancy enough for you. What did you go out to see? You, and he, he tells them, and he's just very plain with them. He says, you went out to the desert. You went out to the wilderness, and you expected a guy in nice clothes? What were you doing? out in the middle of nowhere looking for the fanciest man in the world. Of course he's weird. Of course he's loud. Of course he smells funny. You went out to the wilderness to find him. Then he says, and John was one of those guys that that was fasting and, and wouldn't eat and drink with you, and so you said he has a demon. Then I come, and I eat and drink with you, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. And he goes and he says, you guys are like the ones, like kids in the street who say, oh, we're going to play a sad song for you and you did not weep. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna play a happy song and you did not dance. In other words, you're always looking for something other than what's in front of you. You're, you're constantly, your expectations are always different and you can never perceive what God is doing. Did you know you could be one of these Christians that no matter what God does or who he does it through, you will always find a reason to be dissatisfied with it. You always find something to pick at. It does not mean you've got the gift of discernment because you're picky. You're just picky. Do you know the pickiest people were the Pharisees and they picked apart John and they picked apart Jesus. They were never happy. They were always looking for something else. The question's not whether it meets our expectations. The question is, will we allow our expectations to adjust when we see God at work? Because the expectations of the people was not what they saw when Jesus came. 
when the Magi came, they came to Jerusalem. Why'd they go to Jerusalem? Some might say, well, a star led them to Jerusalem. No. A star didn't, the star didn't stop, start moving, according to the word, the star didn't start moving until they left Jerusalem. What they saw was a star in the east that they recognized was the sign of Jesus, of the Messiah. And so when they saw that, they knew it was a king in Israel, so they went to the capital. They went to Jerusalem. They said, we saw his star back there. We came to see him. Where is he to be born? And the, and the religious scholars and, the, and the, the, the smart people of their day gathered together and said, well, the prophecy says in Micah 5, he'll be born in Bethlehem. So the Magi departed for Bethlehem, and when they started out going for Bethlehem, then they saw the light again, and it began to move. And it stopped right above where Jesus was to be born. I don't, I'm going to tell you something obvious. That wasn't an actual star. Actual stars don't do that. Right? This was a light. In fact, if you look at, at the word in the Bible, it does not necessarily mean a star as we understand it. It means a heavenly light. What do you think they saw? You know what my theory is? I think they saw the light of angels that led them and guided them. And it stopped right above the place that Jesus was to be born. And I've asked you this question before, and I'll say it again. All those smart people who said, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, none of them said, can we come with you? They all stayed in Jerusalem. Nobody was looking for what God had promised. In fact, when Jesus, he escaped to Egypt and he came back and they settled in, in Nazareth. When Jesus walked the earth and, and he was preaching and miracles were happening, what was said about him? They said, can anything good come out of Galilee? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The stumbling block for them was, where's he from? He's a hick. Look at this hick, this hillbilly from Galilee. And look at the people that are following him, a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and rebels. In fact, the scripture tells us that, that in the prophecy over, over Zebulun and Naphtali, it says, for you, you were much despised. He says, there's a land that's dark and it's despised and nobody, it's a land of the, of the shadow of death. Nobody wants to go there. But he says, a light will shine in that land, and you will make it glorious by way of the sea, by way of Galilee. I want you to hear that. Because in the Gospels, it says when Jesus went to that neighborhood, it says he fulfilled that prophecy, that he went to this land of darkness, of death that nobody wanted to go to, and he brought light, and he made it glorious. Where did he go? He went to the ghetto. He went to the place nobody else wanted to go because that's where God said, I'm going to shine my light. I love that phrase. He will make it glorious. The presence of God in a dark, desperate, broken down place makes that dark, desperate, broken down place glorious just because God's there. There's a pastor in Chicago who has done great work, great teacher, great preacher, but he's done great work in inner city Chicago. They bought 
They bought abandoned buildings because business was moving out of those neighborhoods, moving out of the downtown, moving out of these areas because they were, it was a dump, the, the, it, was, it was becoming ghettoized, and they said, we're moving into that neighborhood, and we're going to buy the old malls, we're going to buy the old banks, and we're going to fill them with schools, and we're going to fill them with, with ministry training facilities, and we're going to teach people not only to flow in ministry, we're going to teach people how to flow in business, and we're not picking the, 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 the rich people, we're picking the poor people who don't have the education that other people have and we're going to train them up and he said the scripture that spoke to him was out of Ezekiel where God said I'm going to take the ruined places and I'm going to make them like the garden of Eden so he took it seriously and they went to the ruined places of Chicago and said God make it glorious and they rebuilt and they invested and they trained and now people are coming out of that space, out of those schools, and are changing the city and are changing the nation. God wants us to be the ones that are looking in the unexpected places to find him where he is and say, God, it may not be glorious now, but your presence makes places glorious. You make places glorious. You make people glorious that weren't glorious. You choose the despised, the rejected, the nullified. You choose the people everybody looks over. You choose those people because you always start small with seeds. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. When it's the smallest of all these seeds, but when it begins to grow, it, it grows and it, it branches out and it gives shade to all that are in the, in, in the place. And and when we hear that description, you say, Jesus, that's not how mustard plants grow. But he begins to say, it's small like a mustard seed, but it grows into something far beyond a mustard plant. It grows into something that gives shade to the whole garden. Are we waiting for God to do something great that looks great? Or will we be like Simeon and look at the smallest, most insignificant child and say, I've seen salvation. He didn't say, someday you'll be salvation. He didn't say, well, shoot, I can't stay alive long enough for you to become something. You're just a baby. He says, I've seen salvation. I can die in peace. Now that is a spiritually minded person who can see something in seed form and say, I can die in peace. I've seen the salvation of the Lord. And I would ask you, where are your eyes looking? Many of you need salvation. Now, I'm not talking about getting saved from hell. I'm talking about rescue, deliverance from whatever you're going through. And, and what do we look for? We look in the obvious places. But could we have our eyes open to find God in places we don't expect to find him? Could we expect that Jesus may not show up in Jerusalem, but start out in Bethlehem? Can we expect that he doesn't build his ministry in the big city, but instead builds his ministry in the country, in the rural area, in the ghetto where nobody expects him to be? Can we expect that Jesus may show up in places that the world's not looking for him, using people that the world's not looking for? God loves seeds. He loves them. He loves to start with small things. And the question for all of us is, will we despise the small things? The world will despise the small things. The world will say they don't count for anything. They're not worth looking at. They're not worth paying attention to. But the people of God should be like God, like Simeon, like the shepherds, 
like the Magi. They were looking, like Anna. They were all looking, and they saw what God wanted them to see. I made this point last week, but the shepherds heard the word of the Lord from angels, but everybody else heard it from shepherds. And it's no less the word of the Lord because it came from shepherds than if it came from angels. It's still the word of the Lord. But how many of you would have paid attention when shepherds told you, we saw something cool? Yeah. Well, if God wanted me to know, why wouldn't he send angels to me? He sent angels to shepherds and he sent shepherds to you. Can we expect to hear from God from shepherds and expect that that's going to be just as powerful as if we heard it straight from angels? Amen. Can we expect that God uses the lowest, the things that people look over, the people that God looks over? I want us to have our eyes open this season to look in places no one else is looking. Now, now don't just pick a place and say, well, because it's small, God will use it. No. But pay attention. We are spiritual people. (laughs) yes Lord (laughs) right on cue we used to hear the word of the Lord now we get texts from him and it's wonderful (laughs) he uses emojis and everything it's beautiful what are we looking for what are you looking for Many of you have been standing on the promises of God. Let me tell you, in hindsight, we look at Jesus and say he fulfilled all those prophecies. But at the time, no one expected what they saw. Adjust your expectations. Open your eyes, open your ears, open your hearts. And let God show you the things you overlooked. Let God show you the things you thought were worth nothing. There are seeds that have been planted in your life and in the life of your family that you've looked over for too long because they were so small and insignificant. Those seeds deserve your attention because in those seeds contain the kingdom of God. God always starts things in seed form. You can get an apple out and count the seeds in that apple and know how many seeds are in that apple, but you can't count how many apples are in that seed. Give value to the small things again. Give value to the things that God gives value to. It's going to take spiritual awareness. It's going to take our ears being open, our eyes being open, our hearts being open. It's going to take a wound to our pride because pride wants to build on your strengths. Pride wants to build on the big things in your life, but God wants to use the things you never expected. It will destroy your pride, which is a great thing. One of Mary's key phrases in her song she sung at the angel visitor was that you brought low the pride, you lifted the humble. My soul does magnify the Lord my God. My spirit exalts in God my Savior. For he looked down and he found the lowly and he lifted me up. A country teenager. God picked her. Thank God. God may use the not so well spoken amongst us. God may use the not so noble amongst us, the not so mighty, the not so wise, because he likes to use that. Now, don't discount somebody because they seem to have it together, because it's God that exalts. And you know what? 
If you found Peter towards the end of his life, you'd think here's a guy that God can use. Because by that point, he had been so transformed by the Spirit of God that you look at him and say, he's wise, he's noble, he's mighty. But you wouldn't have said that about Peter version (laughs) 1.0. Right? So it's also a mistake to look at somebody and say, well, God can't use them. They're too powerful. They're too mighty. They're too wise. Just say God can use anybody. And look for his spirit, look for his hand, rather than looking for what the world's looking for. You'll find him in odd places if you're expecting to find him. Let's stand together and let's praise the Lord together.